Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual, Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. Uh, We talked last week, I think we started the week with 18 cases left to go. It is now Thursday. There were two opinion days, one on Tuesday, one today. We have nine cases left to go. So there was five opinions on Tuesday, four more this morning, including some really big ones. We are also getting more decisions tomorrow and possibly even more next week. So we are in the thick of it, as they say. Yeah, we were just, I feel like it was, uh, you know, just the other week we were griping about how far behind they were, but they have caught up quickly. Um, And as you said, we've got a couple big ones so far this week. Uh, Why don't we just dive right in? Why don't we? So the court handed down, as I said, four decisions um, this morning on Thursday as we record. The biggest one definitely is going to be New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. We've talked about this on the show before. This is the big blockbuster Second Amendment case. In a six to three decision written by Justice Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court struck down New York's uh, restrictions on concealed carry licenses as unconstitutional. They said they deprived people of their due process rights to enjoy their Second Amendment rights to carry firearms outside the home. Now, this is a huge ruling in that uh, it's the biggest expansion of gun rights since the 2008 decision in District of Columbia versus Heller. That's the one that actually for the first time recognized an individual person's right to own guns unconnected to any service in a militia or anything like that just to literally keep guns in the home however it didn't extend outside the home at that point in time and so courts had kind of upheld these concealed carry restrictions as being kind of a different question of constitutional law and the supreme court as i said in this uh, opinion by clarence thomas says this is really a distinction without a difference here. They, uh, people should be able to carry uh, firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense under the original meaning of the Second Amendment, and that New York's very restrictive regime in which people had to show that they had, there was proper cause in order to receive one of these licenses, which has been interpreted to mean you know, a heightened risk of danger present in their lives, something that most people can't satisfy, that additional requirement for applicants to obtain these public carry licenses is unconstitutional. In the words of Justice Thomas, this is going to have some big implications for uh, several other states in the union that have similar restrictions on carry licenses. Big implications indeed. Um, And I know we're going to talk about those in a little bit, but before we kind of break down into kind of the the nitty gritty of this opinion, um, Jimmy, do you want to refresh us on kind of the background of the case and how we got here? Yeah, this case is a constitutional challenge mounted by two New York citizens backed by a gun rights group, uh, Brandon Koch and Robert Nash. Uh, They applied for carry licenses and were rejected by the state of New York because they, you know, could not claim any unique danger to their personal safety. This is something that's generally speaking reserved for things like former judges or former, former police officers, things like that. Um, And so it's very rare that your average citizen will be able to obtain 
a concealed carry license um, to, to, you know, to, to bring a gun in public. And they filed suit, and it has gone up through the court system. It reached the Supreme Court. And we now know that the, the court has basically sided with them in no uncertain terms that, in fact, uh, New York's whole edifice of, of, of concealed carry uh, restrictions has to fall. These have been in place since, uh, I, I believe it's 1911, so about a century now. Um, and there was a, you know, a big debate when the case was being briefed and when it was being argued just about, you know, the public safety implications of getting rid of these restrictions on concealed carry licenses. Um, as I mentioned, they uh, are the law of the land in several other states as well, uh, including, you know, where I live in Maryland and uh, California is another one, the District of Columbia and uh, a, a few others in between. And those are now, those are called um, May issue regimes in which the the state enjoys a degree of discretion before it actually has to grant applicants a uh, you know public carry license this is as opposed to what they call a shall issue regime in which the state doesn't really have any discretion whatsoever so long as the applicant him or herself satisfied kind of like enumerated criteria and in a concurrence justice kavanaugh was pretty careful to point out that like you know, this is this decision is going to be limited to those uh, may issue regimes, the ones with uh, you know discretion on the part of the government officials that are weighing some of these applications, and that nothing in the opinion is to be construed as affecting you know or at least telling the shall issue states what they can and cannot include in in their list of criteria. But basically, to kind of put like the top line on it is that um, when it comes to a constitutional right like Second Amendment, uh, states are not allowed to basically just uh, adopt licensing regimes where they enjoy a whole lot of discretion and can deny people their ability to carry firearms in public for purposes of self-defense so long as they you know, prove these types of special need. It's a, it's a, it's a huge decision, obviously, one that you know, spans, I guess I'm looking at my document now, there's like 135 pages in this file. We got concurrences, we got Thomas's opinion, we got uh, a very uh, kind of really interesting read in Justice Stephen Breyer's principal dissent joined by Kagan and Sotomayor. But uh, I haven't you know, obviously read through the entire thing yet, uh, uh, but there's there's a lot of interesting nuggets in here. Anything from the dissent that you think is noteworthy in, in terms of a, an, an interesting nugget, as you say? I mean, it's a there's so much in here, right? Um, there is the kind of debate, the back and forth between the you know the majority, the dissent, and you know this kind of echoes some of what we heard at oral arguments over the historical record in this case. Now, just to kind of give us a kind of a, a, a landscape of the constitutional background here is, you know, this is a court that basically embraces originalism and originalism in this case tells us that um, the constitution is to be interpreted according to its public meaning when it was ratified. This is in the late 18th century. And so, you know, you have the, 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 the majority opinion by Thomas here stretching at length. I mean, we're talking many, many pages trying to dive into the historical record to determine, you know, just what the founders would have essentially uh, tolerated in terms of restrictions on public uh, carry uh, uh, of firearms at that time, at the at the at the at the turn of the 18th century, now um, the gun control advocates, uh, including the state of New York, had had pointed 
I think we had talked about this before. They, they went all the way back to like, you know, the 14th century and even earlier in pointing to English laws that restricted the public carry of firearms in the public square, in the town square, or I guess it wasn't firearms at that point. They were just dangerous arms. Right. Um, but, um, you know, just as Thomas, he surveys the historical record and he says that it's ambiguous at best and that we can't use those grounds as, a, as grounds to tolerate this type of restriction in the 21st century. It's a really interesting kind of historical back and forth. I'm sure it will be fodder for, you know, legal historians to kind of dive into. But that's kind of the world that we live in now in terms of how the courts deal with these constitutional cases. They they kind of turn into what I think Justice, uh, the late Justice John Paul Stevens referred to as amateur historians in some of these cases. Um, but you mentioned, you know, you, you asked about what else was interesting from Justice Breyer's um, dissent. And I don't want to just focus on the academic stuff because, you know, this is like a really important issue. It's guns, right? So while this case was pending, obviously, there were several mass shootings, horrific tragedies around the country uh, in Buffalo, um, in Philadelphia, uh, you know, the slaughter of innocent school children in Uvalde, Texas, um, and that was what Justice Breyer focused on in his dissent. He said that, you know, the court is trying to figure out the extent to which the Second Amendment prohibits some of these regulations, but they're totally underestimating and not paying at all enough attention to the severity of the like of the gun violence epidemic in this country. He pointed to those recent mass shootings and basically said, this is, you know, something that the 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 democratic representation, small d democratic representation of these states have chosen to enact. And the court is running roughshod over those considerations, what the people have decided through their legislators to tolerate in terms of uh, firearm restrictions in the public square. Um, and pointed to the fact that in uh, the year 2020, there were over 45,000 deaths in America from, from gun violence. And, um, Justice Alito responds to this in a concurrence of his own, and he says, you know, this is totally not relevant. Um, you're just, you know, spewing all these facts about gun violence without any connection or relevance to the actual legal question at hand, which involves the specific statute passed in New York restricting um, firearm carry. And he, he says, you, you talk about Buffalo, he's speaking to Breyer. Well, Buffalo's in the state of New York, so how could this, this, this law, or the absence of it, how could this have stopped a mass shooting like that? Um, so he objects to that kind of framing of the, 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 the debate around the Second Amendment in the context of this horrible scourge of you know, mass shootings and everyday gun violence that we live in. But um, it's a really interesting opinion. I'll still, you know, throughout the day, I'll be kind of going back to it and, and reading more. Um, but it looks like the, the upshot of this thing is going to be that it's a loosening of gun laws in America. I mean, there are several states, I think six, I, I, I think I already mentioned this, that will be in jeopardy of having their concealed carry restrictions uh, kind of overturned or struck down. They might need to reenact new ones in light of the uh, holding of the court in this case. Yeah, as you say, I think this is one that we're going to be, you know, dissecting uh, the, the impacts of for, for quite a while, yeah. um, you know, just given the, the time in which it lands, essentially. Inarguably, that was the biggest case handed down so far this week. Um, but it was not the only case, uh, and we had a couple other notable ones. Um, also today, we got a big case involving Miranda rights in a 6-3 decision. Uh, 
The justices rules that police officers cannot be subject to civil liability for failing to warn criminal suspects of their right against self-incrimination. Um, I, you know, I think everyone listening kind of has a a kind of basic understanding of what Miranda rights are, you know, even if it's only from TVs and movies, right? That, you know, if a police officer is arresting you or, you know, or, or, or kind of questioning you, they're supposed to tell you of, you know, various rights, and right, including your right against self-incrimination. Um, so there's been this question and a very huge circuit split as to the whether um, this rule, this right, is, you know, if you don't give the Miranda rights, also kind of leaves an opening for um, a private cause of action against folks who did not receive their Miranda rights to sue the police officers or, you know, the the, the law enforcement officials who, who did not warn them. Um, in Thursday's opinion, which was written by Justice Alito, the court's conservative majority sided with five circuit courts in finding that, you know, their previous uh, watershed Miranda versus Arizona decision, which created Miranda rights, um, does not make it unconstitutional for law enforcement to not read these rights. Um, so they can't be sued, right? Like, this is a rule of evidence, and you can't necessarily introduce statements that come from, you know, questioning of someone who hasn't been read their Miranda rights, but that doesn't mean that it it's unconstitutional to not read them the Miranda rights and open up this essential opening for civil liability. Now, this one is an interesting one, and it involves what sound like pretty straightforward issues of constitutional law, but are actually pretty complicated. So in the decision in Miranda, uh, the court, I guess, sets out these what Justice Alito calls prophylactic rules to avoid constitutional harms in the course of a police interrogation. And yet the Supreme Court in its decision, you know, is very careful to point out that the violation of Miranda does not necessarily amount to a Fifth Amendment violation itself and therefore can't sustain this claim under Section 1983, which of course provides litigants the ability to sue over you know, constitutional violations by state officers acting under color of law. How does the court get from, you know, Miranda being this constitutional rule, if you will, to concluding that violating that rule and basically not advising someone of their 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 right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera, before signing a confession, as has happened in this case, is not a violation of the Fifth Amendment? It's just a little bit confusing is all, I guess. It is, and I... I it's not the easiest path to follow without stumbling, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, you, you kind of get to the heart of the matter here in, in even just asking the question, which is that, you know, this right for Miranda rights was created by a Supreme Court decision. It's not laid out in the Fifth Amendment, right? Um, so, you know, that's one tactic. Also, you know, not reading the Miranda rights doesn't mean that there's not necessarily any repercussion. You know, there's standing, there's standing um, precedent that, you know, these cannot be admitted into court necessarily. You know, right, and which is what happened. There's all sorts of technicalities, yeah. but essentially you can't admit unmirandized uh, statements into court um, and, 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 and those bar them. Also, uh, you know, I'll just note, you know, that this question here in this, in this, case is about 
bringing a, 19, a Section 1983 claim, right? So Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act, um, basically launching a civil rights lawsuit against law enforcement. And Section 1983 is very complicated. This is where we, we delve into qualified immunity cases. Um, you know, so, you know, what the court is deciding here is, is, is that they're saying that, you know, this is not the way to challenge the fact that you were not Mirandized, right? Now, of course, the just there are justices, there was a dissent here from Justice Elena Kagan joined by Justice Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor who are, you know, dissent and say, like, you know, this does not make sense. There's a fight. If you violate this constitutional rule, you know, there should also be a remedy for that violation and that, we're, you know, they argue that this opinion today takes away that remedy. Yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of Section 1983 cases this term. I know there was also one today as well that actually opened up Section 1983 as a way to make a claim or a constitutional challenge to a method of execution um, in a separate case. Um, We don't have time to get into that one, but it's a really interesting one in which the defendant, um, a Georgia death row inmate, was basically seeking to change the method of his execution from lethal injection, which is the only protocol used in Georgia, to firing squad, which is actually um, allowed in four other states in the union. So there was uh, there was you know a section nineteen eighty three case kind of expanding that remedy, and then another one kind of limiting it. I guess in this case, in the case of uh, Miranda warnings, really interesting stuff. Natalie, I want to turn and talk about um, a decision that was handed down on Tuesday in Carson versus Macon. We've talked about this one when it was argued in the fall involving a main tuition assistance program uh, that basically allowed uh, parents who didn't have a local high school to receive tuition assistance from the state government and send their kid to a, and this is the key part here, a non-religious private school. Um, So this program obviously excluded what are called sectarian schools or religious schools, another way to put it, and the court, in a decision, um, six to another six to three decision on Tuesday. That's the theme this week. Six to three. Um, the court said that that's unconstitutional. It violates these families' rights under the free exercise clause to be essentially excluded from a generally available um, program that allows parents to send their children to the schools of their choice. So this case was brought by two sets of parents: the Carsons and the Nelsons, um, and. The Carson said that this program basically forced them to pay out of pocket for their daughter's religious education at Bangor Christian School. The Nelson said that they could not afford to send their daughter to another Christian school, the Temple Academy. And they say that's all the result of the state program that basically said that religious schools could not qualify for this tuition assistance program. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts, he writes the decision for the 6-3 court, and his decision is pretty straightforward. It's unequivocal that a Neutral program available to you know secular institutions in the state cannot also deny or exclude religious institutions based on you know the fact that they are religious institutions. Um, and he points to two cases that the Supreme Court has decided in recent years: 2017 case called Trinity Lutheran and a 2020 case called Espinosa. 
Uh, the first one involved a state program about you know resurfacing uh, blacktops uh, with old tires to make them a little bit safer on children's knees you know when they fall down uh the state of missouri had excluded religious schools from participating in that program the supreme court struck that down and a case called uh, espinoza versus montana department of revenue that was about whether a state could exclude religious institutions from being the beneficiary of a kind of a scholarship tax credit program and the court struck that one down as well and roberts is saying these same principles apply here as well and he was totally unswayed by um you know, the state's argument that they were doing this out of uh, concern for avoiding any problems under the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, which, of course, prohibits the government from endorsing or making an official religion. Um, and Roberts is like, this is not an Establishment Clause concern, and therefore you can't use that as a basis to exclude the religious school. He writes, a neutral benefit program in which public funds flow to religious organizations, and here's the key part, through the independent choices of private benefit recipients does not offend the Establishment Clause. And that this program kind of like goes way above what, you know, the Constitution requires when it comes to separation of church and state. I'm going to take a wild leap and say that the three dissenting justices did say this violated the Establishment Clause. Am I right? You're not exactly right. So this is an interesting point here. Um, Breyer writes the decision, or he writes the principal dissent, and he basically says, look, the Supreme Court has long recognized that there's this Establishment Clause, and it says the government can't endorse religion, and then there's this Free Exercise Clause that says the government can't infringe free exercise. He says there's naturally some kind of tension between these two clauses and that there needs to be what this, this is. A, he kind of borrows a phrase that the Supreme Court's used in the past. There's a play in the joints here in between the two clauses. And he says the Supreme Court is basically only focusing on the free exercise clause, not focusing at all on the establishment clause and not giving any flexibility to states to adopt their own policies in light of this play in the joint. So he's saying, look, even if this, you know, this program, or even if allowing religious schools to be a part of this program doesn't violate the Establishment Clause, that doesn't mean that states then must, as opposed to may, include religious schools. Are you following me a little bit? He's saying like, look, it's possible that states may um, include religious schools in these types of tuition assistance programs under the Establishment Clause. However, that's, that is not to say that they must do so under the Free Exercise Clause. Um, and he basically says, you know, the, the states need to be a, given a little bit of a long leash here in enacting the policies that they see fit to kind of give effect to what are called anti-establishment concerns. Um and he makes a kind of, he goes out of his way to say like, look, there's like a hundred religions in America, you know, and the first amendment was adopted to kind of keep religious strife to a minimum in a, in a, in a pluralistic uh, society like the one we have now. And he points out the fact that the Banger Christian School and Temple Academy have uh, policies that basically allow them to make hiring and firing and even admissions decisions um, while giving considerations to things like uh, a faculty member or a student's sexual orientation among other considerations and he's like look this is gonna 
you're you're undermining the constitutional founders' efforts to basically create this pluralistic society in which people can kind of get along with one another without the state getting entangled in these types of institutions. Um, and Roberts is pretty clear that he does not share those same concerns, that he thinks that, you know, uh, ex- excluding these religious institutions on the basis of, you know, how they're going to use these funds is, um, it's, it's religious discrimination. It's anti-religious discrimination, pure and simple. And so you just have a completely different um, approach to the Constitution's First Amendment um, between the Republican appointed majority and the Democratic appointed uh, minority on the case. Now, Jimmy, I think you've touched on this briefly before, but this is a case that's going to have, you know, pretty broad implications for other states. I know this is a very specific example in a specific state with a specific law, but correct me if I'm wrong, there's lots of other states that have similar programs and policies, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this one is is very kind of tailored to Maine. It's It's the most rural state in the country, and they are the ones that are facing this particular issue about, you know, over half of their school districts not having a local school. So this tuition assistance program has been like a fundamental aspect of Maine's school system for decades. Um, But you can envision a situation in which, you know, something similar where the state is providing um, parents funds uh, for to send their children to private school for whatever reason, it's it's likely that as a result of this decision that they will also have to send funds to parents seeking to to send their kids to you know religious schools i mean you uh, the one circumstance that comes to mind is is states that have um funding programs for the parents of special need students who may not be able to receive adequate educational help at their local public school um in many cases the state will actually pay them um, tuition assistance to go to a private school that can accommodate those special needs. Um, and if a state decides to bar uh, these parents from sending their kids to uh, a potentially a religious school that could accommodate those special needs, then you could see the rationale and the logic in this opinion easily applying to that circumstance as well. And, you know, there are groups like the Institute for Justice, which is the group that represented the parents in this case that are dedicated to doing just that and identifying some of what they perceive as these anti-religious uh, discriminatory regimes around the country. So I don't think we've seen the last uh, free exercise case in the context of a school program. I think I'll have to agree with you, Jimmy. Um, but I think that wraps us up for today. Um, like we said earlier, big week of big opinions and we are kind of seeing the finish line nine more opinions to go um jimmy can't wait to dig into to those next week thank you so much natalie and thank you to our listeners for tuning in um it's it's always great to kind of break down the week's news on the podcast and if you like what you hear please write a review it helps you know uh people find the show um but yeah natalie it was great chatting with you this week We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporter, Rachel Scharf, 
Music for this show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listening to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.